Chris Wendelkin, and this is On the Line, a podcast where I talk to friends of mine about all things NBA. We do some NBA deep dives, uh, drafts, news from around the league. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new to the show, you can tweet at me at ontheline underscore pod. I'm on Instagram. If you want to send me any of your NBA thoughts, questions, you got a fantasy draft coming up, feel free to email me at onthelinepod at gmail.com. Last, this is an important one, especially if you're a new listener. If you could please rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. It really helps me out a lot, So, um, especially as the NBA season is coming up. So if you do that, um, really helps me out a lot. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. This is On The Line, episode number 30. Incredibly, we are up to episode number 30. That is the Steph Curry, the Seth Curry, the Dell Curry of episode numbers. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're taking care wherever you're getting this podcast today. Throughout the week... Um, editing the show, continuing to research AI and play back what Ben and I had talked about, all I could think about was how many other Allen Iversons there have probably been. How many other brilliantly talented kids have wound up behind bars or had their lives and dreams and careers derailed at the hands of prejudicial law, discriminatory, xenophobic, race-baiting politicians disguising themselves as prosecutors and judges? What if Allen Iverson wasn't a high school phenom? What if Allen Iverson wasn't a budding sports celebrity granted clemency at the 11th hour by the first ever elected African-American governor of a U.S. state? Would we ever know his name? Would Would we ever have a podcast to tell his or her story about promises lost? Like all mythic characters, athletes have a more complicated, nuanced backstory that predates their shining, defining moments on the big stage. And many times as fans, we don't get to fully appreciate or understand or know about the story behind the story, what's beneath the surface, and help define the character of the characters that we've come to love or loathe or idolize or revere or even just wonder about. To have a conversation about Iverson's game, the way he played, the why he played, the reason why he played as he did requires examining his his formative past, the trials and tribulations, the circumstances of his life, because they're inextricably linked. Iverson played with a reckless abandon, yes, but it wasn't an accident. At times, he seemed to trust no one on and off the court and look no further than Hampton, Virginia and Circle Lane's bowling alley to understand why. Gary Moore, Iverson's business manager and former youth league football coach, once said, Allen was wrongfully accused, he was wrongfully tried, he was wrongfully convicted, and wrongfully sentenced for something he did not do. It was a very, very mean and cynical decision made by adults on a young kid whose life was so promising, and he will never, ever let that go. This is the life and times of Allen Iverson. Here's chapter two. I don't want to make it like too romantic that he was yeah. oh he had the hardest life but, but like yeah he had a really hard life but there are a lot and of so people who had people. a way harder life um, who didn't have uh, the, the type of people just like you know constantly like after him and, and, and trying to make sure he was okay and, and all this stuff so I think that gets us to the point now where where we can probably talk about um, 
the incident. This is this is a big one. This is a pretty defining moment. So we've established now that he is a trouble kid, but he's you know just an incredibly standout athlete on both the football field and the basketball court. But he is hanging out with some you know like his some of the company that he keeps you know aren't the best kids aren't aren't like you know he's not the best student and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Anyway, now I'm rambling, but let's just get to it. The bowling alley brawl. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> So, <laughs> it's Saturday night, mm-hmm. February 13, mm-hmm. 1993, into the early morning of February 14, which is Valentine's Day. Bummer, as uh, Peter Bankman in Ghostbusters Alan would say. Alan is a junior or senior in high school at Alan this point? Alan is a junior in high school. This is his, uh, his junior year, okay. 92-93. The location is the Bowling Alley Circle Lanes Incorporated, which is now actually the name was changed to Spare Times, but back then it was called Circle Lanes Bowling Alley. Which, by the way, is still open today. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Which wow. I've always kind of like thought, like, I wonder if what we ever rep- made a road trip. Yeah, I wonder what the reputation of the place is today. I wonder if it can possibly escape the infamous nature of it. But I mean, you have to imagine there's people, there's there's fans that, that still go down just there. Just like take photos. Saying, right? oh, you know, I want to go bowl, bowl I a couple. S- at the place where Alan at Iverson the, at the, was in a brawl. At the location of the brawl. So back in the day, this, this bowling alley, Gary more specifically talked talks about he had warned Alan, don't go down there. Mm-hmm. Nothing good happens down there. And specifically said, everyone down there is like a racist. Right. There's only like, it's just bad news, especially for a young black man. Yeah. Like there only bad things can happen down there. There are people looking for trouble. So what you'll you'll learn if you watch the, uh, the Steve James documentary, the 30 for 30, no crossover, is that Hampton has a very long and very tortured, as many, many towns in the South have, very, very tortured history with race. In fact, Hampton, Virginia, in a bit of uh, historical trivia, was the site of the very first first arrival of slaves in North America. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. In August of 1619, an English ship flying a Dutch flag, the White Lion, appeared offshore from Point Comfort, which is a, a oh, yeah. point in Hampton, and its cargo included 20-plus Africans captured from the slave from a slave ship called Sao Jao Bautista. Yeah, so this is like the nerve center for like race yeah. relations yeah. In, in, yeah, like in, in uh, American like cultural history. Yeah, basically it's... Like it tra- Races back it started. To this place. It started from there, and it and it really never got all that much better. Obviously, they you know they made some progress after the Civil War and all that. And uh, and the and the town, the area was actually pretty booming during the you know World War II and post war years. There was a big naval shipyard there that employed a, a bunch of people. But you know by the eighties, that had kind of you know a lot of companies were were outsourcing and uh, shipping jobs overseas and yada yada. And it was really a pretty pretty tough area. And there was still a lot of, uh, you know, white-black conflict. There was a town bordering Hampton called Pocosin, and Pocosin was sort of the infamous, like, white-only Confederate flag-waving town that all the black kids kind of knew about is like, yeah, you don't want to go to Pocosin. Like, it's just, like, uh-huh. kind of, like, where you don't want to be seen. And it turns out that a lot of kids from Pocosin bowled at this bowling alley. Hey, can we just mention, like, the implications, n- not to uh, be too high and mighty here, but mm-hmm. just, like, the implications of, like, what outsourcing essentially is and means and, like, how that effects race relations like oh yeah let's get into you, it like we, you are we were talking about aggrieved white people mm-hmm. who have 
lost their jobs mm-hmm. who you know they're they're people who are upset about their lack of employment and seeing lower wage jobs go to people who are in desperate times and willing to take those jobs and many of those many of those people are lower income mm-hmm. many of those people are immigrants or african americans or just or or white people who need uh, some sort of income. So just like the cultural and racial implications of corporate outsourcing is you are creating a fabric in the culture and community of hostility mm-hmm. and animosity, people being angry and feeling as though their fellow neighbor is essentially a predator mm-hmm. and their fellow neighbor is essentially an enemy and someone that could take their livelihood away from them, mm-hmm. their ability to provide for their family, their ability to pay their mortgage, pay for groceries. So a lot of that cultural, you know, a lot of a lot of the racism in the community was sort of rooted in economics. Absolutely. Yeah, I believe firmly that, you know, obviously there are people with kind of an inherent racial bias, but those kinds of biases are like inflamed yeah. like ma- like magnified times a thousand because of a struggle for resources totally. and in you know a capitalist country where there's not always like the best safety net for people and you know i'm not going to get on like a whole like no, no, socialist no, no. rant here but when I you mean, see y- when you're losing your job to someone else yeah and that you anger see- and that and that frustration and desperation it doesn't come from like oh this black guy looks like a thug it be- it's because your life is shitty yeah and you're looking for someone to blame and Frankly, it's like an irrational level of anger. Totally. It's like, it, it's not based, obviously, it's not based in fact, it's based in um, passion. Mm-hmm. So when you can't provide for your family and you feel inadequate because you can't provide for and your family. Every day of your life is shitty and, and you see miserable and you're just in a bad mood all the time. The guy or the lady that just took my job mm-hmm. looks different than me. Mm-hmm. Then you start associating, hey, the fact that they look different from me is a source of my anger i'm gonna hate all people who look different than me because Mm -hmm. i i have all these terrible thoughts about them yeah so you know in the fabric of hampton virginia is this like economic struggle right like Mm -hmm. that's occurring all across the country where people are trying to provide and people are losing their jobs Mm -hmm. and people are placing their prejudices and their angers and their fears on different uh races Mm -hmm. and and ethnic and 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 different groups of people yeah and then you just lay that all on top of this you know history uh, of you know being a a confederate state and uh and obviously like one of the the main entry entry points for the slave trade so Um, now we're at a bowling alley yes so it's 1993 now we're a little bit removed from from you know 1619 here but 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 all these things yeah that that's the context the very relevant context and so now was that um, too wonky should i just edit that no out? no no. i like that i think okay. that's actually very i think that's i just, just feel like it's a relevant thing it's to, to, it, it totally is and it's, it's like not something that people really like we should into. remind each yeah. other like hey racism exists and this is sometimes why it's yeah. it's for these reasons like people don't inherently hate people who have different skin than them they yeah. hate people who are they see as like threats yeah it's just my team versus your team my team versus and your whatever team. reason yeah. i can come up with to to pick a fight at right. all yeah. yeah all right so 
Saturday night, Iverson and his buddies, his teammates, decide to have some fun. They go to the bowling alley, and by all accounts, they're rowdy. They're having a good time. We've won the state championship by this point? Yes, this is We've won after... football and basketball? No, not basketball yet. Okay. This is what, this We're is, mid-season. This is mid-season in basketball. They had won it's... state football championship What's the, the previous month? December. This Dis- is February. February, okay. So two months earlier, not even a month and a half earlier. They Valentine's had, Day. They had won. No, yeah, actually about two months, because okay. um, it was December 13 was the was the Virginia State Football Championship game. So this is actually two months to the day uh, after winning the, the state, state championship. Title. Iverson is obviously like the big, he's the fucking big man on campus yeah. by now. Like uh, the whole town knows it. People know who he is. Everyone knows who he is. There are newspaper articles Colleges being Colleges are written. hanging around. There are yeah. recruiters coming by, you know, left and right. He is already He's the celebrity. Famous. He's a celebrity he's at literally this point. famous. Yeah. Um, at least in, in the town of Hampton, Virginia. Right. So he and his buddies are at the bowling alley and they're having a good time and, you know, kind of living it up. And now, if you believe Iverson's side of the story, at one point he, like, sends a buddy of his over to the snack bar to to get some food and he and that guy, that buddy, is approached by a group of white guys from Pocosin, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the, you know, Confederate flag-waving all-white town in the north part of the uh, of the peninsula next to Hampton. And uh, so the main character here is a guy named Steve Forrest, who is 22 at the time. And basically, there's some sort of an exchange where, you know, from according to Iverson and, and, and you know, his friends, Steve Forrest and his friends just lash out and start throwing racial epithets, including the N-word mm. and little boy. And basically, like, Iverson comes over and he's, you know, exchanges words, yeah. blah, blah, blah. According to Steve Forrest, you know, he and his boys didn't say anything at all. They were just minding their own business playing a nice little innocent yeah. game of, of yeah. bowling. Right. And Iverson and his crew just came over and were just looking to start mm. a fight. Start a fight. So, basically, the kids ask Alan's group to quiet down because they're being too loud. You know, there's shouting that ensues. These racial epithets may or may not have been hurled uh we can get in uh, you know in a little bit to um you know what we think happened um but the fact is that we don't know we weren't there but there are conflicting accounts and very very quickly a massive brawl just escalates in like out of nowhere and it's 20 to 30 people punches are being thrown kicks and suddenly chairs are being thrown and it's like very clearly the black kids versus the white kids. It's completely racially charged. There's like no two ways about it. And um, and we know this because there's surveillance tape. Is that right? Yeah. So the surveillance tape, it's like 15 seconds of grainy footage, which is so weird to me that like that even exists. Yeah. When you think about it, like someone had a video camera at the bowling alley and just like decided to point it in the direction of the melee, but like not for more than 15, 15 or seconds, 20 seconds. Right. And then it's like, stops. what are we not seeing? And it's so grainy and kind of like you know the obviously it's like not very professional camera work if i can critique it it was uh it was actually uh deemed inadmissible uh in in court because you basically don't see anything from it that you could um you know make any conclusions from other than just chaos chairs being thrown people being hit over the head and you can you can't even necessarily tell it's like white kids versus black kids it just looks like a a huge brawl in the in the videotape but all the accounts and and news reports uh, make it pretty clear that it's you know white versus black chairs are being thrown barbara Steele, who's a white girl is hit over the head with a chair and she gets a concussion and six stitches there it is um steve forrest gets a broken arm um there are several other injuries but at the end of the day it was a brawl it it probably lasted 
30 seconds, maybe a minute. They're yeah. like, if you read some of the, the articles, they go into greater detail about how it kind of flared up and then it died down and then it kind of came back as like uh, Barbara Steele's like boyfriend came over to try to kind of defend her and then he got mixed up and, and hurt. And there is basically conflicting accounts of, you know, who did what. And the upshot is like a, a, at a certain point, you know, the cops show up. And at that point, basically all the black kids in the fight flee because that's what black kids are sort of conditioned and trained to To do. do. When police show up, they get the fuck out of there, which is important because the police show up and they sort of survey the damage and what the hell's happened here. And the only people that the police really have to talk to to get the story from are the white kids. And so they say what happened. And I mean, it's also clear that the white kids seem to sustain most of the injuries, um, certainly the most serious ones. But it's like kind of like just, I mean, it's almost mutual combat um, according to some accounts. But the fact is that the police really only have these <laughs> remaining white kids to, to kind of like work with One and side like of the figure, story. figure out what happened from so then it turns out that so this wasn't even like the biggest story at the time four days passed before this incident even appears in the newspaper oh also <laughs> i feel like we've been going like pretty like hard and heavy in terms of like our recounting of of our saga so far and i think it's important that every now and then we try to sprinkle in a little bit of levity which obviously we'll do uh later on in our story when things get a little bit brighter but even now uh there are some details that are that are not even funny i would say but almost darkly absurd or comedic in some way. Uh-huh. Uh, so this is from a, from a uh, an account of the brawl from the Newport News Daily Press, which was the main uh, newspaper in the area and, and which um, documented uh, kind of the, all, all the, uh, the details of the story. Um, so, quote, uh, cups, paper plates, and napkins littered the floor. There was blood and beer everywhere. Drained uh, Woolston, who's one of the um, participants of the brawl or victims of the brawl, depending on your uh, stance, returned to the snack bar then a touch of absurdity quote where's my grilled cheese sandwich a God. woman demanded <laughs> burned Wollston said I'll probably have to make you another one now keep in mind this was after like if you read the article it's like actually like a pretty like grisly scene there was serious I mean there were no guns or knives involved um, which I think is also important but it was like it's a very violent like chaotic insane the entire bowling alley is like cleared out place is just like a disaster scene you know people are like, lying on the floor one woman's like trying to like cradle Barbara Steele and like apply a bandage to her head which is bleeding so but this one woman wants to know where her her grilled cheese sandwich is <laughs> and then later as the crew put the room back together Woolston recalls hearing a song played over and over in the background quote I remember after it was over somebody kept playing Michael Jackson's black or white on the mm-hmm. jukebox right. she said and it's saying over and over it doesn't matter if you're black or white <laughs> after what happened it seemed kind of comical after seeing what i had just seen it does matter yeah <laughs> which is uh yeah which is a i don't know i mean it's just a little touch of absurdity i just want to say um, i know this is kind of a weird anecdote but yeah. i saw a group of kids uh the other day yesterday they must have been 12 or 14 years old mm-hmm. in my neighborhood get into a fist Really? Wow, like an actual fist fight? Like an actual old school fist fight. And it was uh, specifically two kids, but there was probably a group of like five or six of them. And the, you know, the four or five kids that were not in the fist fight were egging on the two that were swinging mm. and um, first of all, it's horrific to, to watch. Like I immediately 
tried to break things up. Other people saw it. Uh, adults, people, people like more responsible than me were like, we're calling the cops, stop, really? wow. get out of here. We're calling mm. cops, stop, like don't hit him, whatever, whatever. It is thinking back on it, you, when you see human beings, kids especially, like swinging their fists at each other's faces Mm -hmm. and like hitting each other. There is something primal about it Mm -hmm. where you, your brain almost like your ability to reason sort of like leaves. Mm -hmm. You temp, it's almost like temporary insanity. It's such heightened emotion and passion. You're not using your brain in a logical way to say like, this is not smart. I could go to jail or I could really hurt someone or I could really get hurt right now or I could, you know, something really bad could happen. Yeah. And you are just purely operating out of adrenaline and passion. Yeah. I just want to, I mean, it just felt prescient. I just kind of remembered that like, God, I just saw a fight. I mean, it wasn't this level of thing. It wasn't a brawl that I saw, but like to see human beings acting like animals and you understand that like that, that phrase fight or flight. Yeah. It's like you have two options. It's life or death. You could either hang in here and try to fight for your life or you could just take the fuck off and run away and run for your life. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there that sometimes things happen in the heat of the moment and in in passion. Well, so that's a good entry point into whether or not Allen Iverson did, in fact, fight or... Do anything. Or fly. Right. Because according to him, he basically, you know, I, I don't think there's any disputing that he was sort of involved in the in the sort of inciting incident. Yes. But but according to him, as sort of as soon as shit got crazy, he saw what was happening and he turned around and he walked out of the bowling alley. His friends and teammates backed him up to say, yeah, I mean... Alan, he wasn't was involved. Alan Iverson, like, every, you know, he's like the most famous kid in town, you know, of course. Like, we... Too like, much he, to lose, yeah, he walked he, away. He knew what was happening in real he had to get out of there and so he did however there was a, a bowling alley employee named brandon smith who testified that he saw iverson hit barbara Steele with a chair with the chair and then in fact claimed that iverson later threw a chair that hit him brandon smith in the face and brandon smith is someone that knew iverson was a classmate um and would have you know obviously like been able to recognize him had he seen him so yeah there was uh conflicting details here that's uh, that we think is the probably the most damning witness it seems to me that brandon smith was the one that that really like his testimony was the one that we don't want to say like the reason he went to jail is because of brandon smith but that was probably the most credible piece of witness testimony yeah but so that's jumping ahead a little bit so 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 after the brawl happens like I said, it wasn't a huge story. It didn't even appear in the newspaper until four days later, buried in the local news section. And it wasn't until uh, a week later that any arrests are made. Um, and in fact, Iverson went to the police station voluntarily, turned himself in and had his picture taken because someone told him that, you know, he, like they were investigating this and it was important that he, you know, showed up and cooperated, stuff. cooperated. Exactly. So he, he goes in on February 23rd into the police station and is formally arrested. That very night, he goes and scores 42 points in a Bethel basketball high playoff win. Bethel high basketball playoff win. And so even though he was he was arrested, they basically, you know, the basketball team says, well, until we know what's, what's happened here, uh, you know, he's going to remain with the team. His coach, Mike Bailey, said that they wouldn't take any action against him until he's, unless he's proven guilty. And uh, they basically like sort of voiced their, their general support and apparently at that point, Mike Bailey had seen this videotape and 
didn't see anything on the tape that that proved that Alan was there. Um, so they were just kind of like, all right, listen, we're just gonna let this play out. We don't think it's that big a deal. I mean, ultimately, it was a fight. It was a it was a big brawl, but it was a fight between kids at a bowling alley. Like there were no guns, there were no knives. Like yes, a woman got pretty seriously injured that's obviously unfortunate um but like you know like this was it was a it was a fight kids being Um, kids yeah i think it's also um, i forget if i had mentioned this already but it's important to to reiterate that we don't know for sure what what happened i would like to believe that iverson was smart enough at that point in his life to say like oh i've got too much to lose peace i'm out of here you guys do whatever you want like he had his boys and his teammates to like back him up and obviously like they did a lot yeah. of the fighting, but we don't know. We have no idea. He here's the thing. Yeah. I want to say I I, I want to believe AI. Yeah, and here's why. I read in an account that after the whole incident went down, he went back to the uh, the the house of a teammate mm. after this whole incident at the bowling alley, and they were playing cards, mm-hmm. board games, cards, playing like Monopoly. Everyone everyone's playing the game, and the first thing Alan does is call Gary Moore, mm. and the first thing he tells him is like, "Hey, look, this thing just happened. I want to let you know I wasn't involved at all, but this thing happened." And so, to me, it is like a red flag that he knew that something wrong went down and mm-hmm. that he was a celebrity and he was involved and he was going to be part of a headline. And the first thing that Gary Moore said was, we need to hire a lawyer immediately. Right. And, um, you know, Gary Moore was savvy enough. He understood the fabric of Hampton, Virginia enough to understand that, like, I, I know how this story ends. Mm-hmm. I know, like, where this leads. And so I want to believe that AI was smart enough and uh conscious enough to understand that like he had to get in front of the story yeah i yeah maybe maybe i'm i mean i i maybe i'm excusing facts and evidence to suggest that he was more involved in the incident than um than i'm giving him credit for but um i don't know yeah i really yeah it's really tough to say like who are we to judge right right all we we know are are the you know the the few facts that that have been confirmed. He also Iverson said this quote uh, about the incident um, afterward. He said, "quote For me to be in a bowling alley where everybody in the whole place know who I am and be cracking people upside the head with chairs and think nothing gonna happen, that's crazy. And what kind of a man would I be to hit a girl in the head with a damn chair? I hit we I wish at least they'd said I hit I'd hit some damn man." <laughs> That sounds yeah. like AI. I mean, it does. It does. It sounds like him. <laughs> that sounds um, like something AI would say. Like that sounds like right up there with the pre- with the practice. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Like, like even it sounds then, like he a, knew he knew how to like, the press. Yeah, it sounds like something he would say at a press conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so he's arrested, and then there's this whole legal process that begins. Like you said, he you know quickly hires a lawyer, and then one important point here is that Iverson was uh, tried as an adult, even though at the time he was 17 years old, um, and normally you have to be 18 to be tried as an adult. Oh, okay, wait, so let's back up one second, just because the whole, this whole like kind of parallel timelines are are like, it's just crazy to me. So he's arrested, um, you know, in late February. The trial, you know, isn't gonna happen for a little while. So uh, in March, one month later, Bethel goes on to win the Virginia State High School Basketball Championship. 
Championship. Iverson scores 28 points in the final, and he uh, and you know thereby like completing his 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 promise at the end of the uh, football championship that he has had to go win one in There's basketball. There's more to come. He fucking did it. On April 4th, he's named the State Basketball Player of the Year. So he's the Player of the Year in both football and basketball his junior year in high school. And then on May 5th, one month after that, is when it's decided that Hampton Juvenile Court Judge Lewis Lerner makes the decision that certifies Iverson as an adult and moves uh, his case from the juvenile court, which is not a court of record and kind of close to the public, but by trying him as an adult, that moves the case to the circuit court, which is, you know, basically, you know, fair game for the press to just go nuts with. And like suddenly now it's like a a thing. Red flag. Like who are are these people running for political office? This to me, some of like, them are, which I'll. Which this I'll, to me is like major, major red flag. Yes, it's like he, this is he, red flag number one. Here's what I here's what I know. Yeah, that kid is a kid, and he's a celebrity kid. Yes, and he was involved in some messed up stuff. And he may or may not be guilty, but he's really, really not guilty of anything more than a typical high school kid. Yes. But like, Ben, I don't know like what kind of trouble you and your high school friends got into. I didn't even get into much trouble in high school. I, I got into virtually no trouble. Mm-hmm. But all my friends got into like low-key trouble. Sure. You know, like... Kids do tons of dumb shit. Like, I definitely had 16 and 17-year-old friends who got into fist fights, mm-hmm. n- maybe probably even at the Syosset bowling alley, mm-hmm. and did not wind up going on trial. Yeah, yeah. And this to me is like a major red flag. Yeah. This is a child celebrity who's a African-American kid mm-hmm. with all sorts of national promise. All the potential in the world. And literally. why don't we put this kid on trial and make an example of him? Exactly. Is a great way to kick off a political campaign and career and celebration mm-hmm. of yourself. This is going to be a big, big story. Let's let's do this. Let's do this for real. So, yeah. Um, Iverson's probation officer had strongly urged that he be tried as a juvenile since he was 17 at the time. And um, I read in one article uh, in Sports Illustrated that such a recommendation is almost uniformly followed. But this time, the juvenile court judge, Lewis Lerner, who I just mentioned, um, decided in a uh, closed hearing that was closed to the public, he decided that the case should be uh, moved to circuit court and he'd be tried as an adult. So that was in, in May of 93. In June of 93 is when Iverson actually turns 18. So then the trial happens in July of 1993. So you mentioned that he lawyered up pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Um, that was a guy, he uh, received pro bono representation from a man named Herb Kelly, who was the counsel for Hampton University, which was the city's historic black college. Right. Um, but by that point, Herb Kelly was a, a pretty old man. He was at a very late stage in his career. And basically, he, to by all accounts, he'd kind of lost his fastball. <laughs> okay. And another kind of weird and inexplicable thing is that instead of taking a jury trial, Herb Kelly decided to take a judge trial. Again, I don't know. I In my research, I wasn't able to figure out why, why? Um, yeah. this decision was made. And this is someone who was obviously working on Iverson's behalf. He was on his side. Um, but he decided for on a judge trial and the judge that was selected or whatever, but he wound up with a guy named judge Nelson Overton. Now Nelson Overton was a Virginia military Institute grad, a real law and order type guy. 
And why turns else become out, a judge? He had a history <laughs> of being extremely harsh on black defendants in his courtroom. No kidding. Yeah. So, July 93, the trial proceeds. The trial is about to begin. Okay. July 9 is the first day of the trial. We've established that Judge Overton, a bit of a bit of a hard hard nut to crack. So I'm going to read here quickly from SI hey, how article. Sh- how about a shout out to our lenient judges? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean... How about a shout out to a little understanding um, in the world? I feel, you know, like I feel inherently we are touching in a roundabout way in this podcast on the subject of politics. I yeah. know we're... Criminal we're, justice. We're talking a lot about race and, and, and the criminal justice system and um, social inequality and prejudices and and all these things. How about a shout out to judges who are a little less judgmental? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna give a shout out here to non-punitive rehabilitation. I love it. Which I for one am a strong proponent of. I feel like judges right now are a big uh conversation in culture. <laughs> like obviously we're looking for a new Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And I just wanna put that out there. I'm not saying one thing or another. Just shout out to my judges who are a little understanding, a little bit more compassionate, who aren't necessarily so black and white, as it were, with some of these uh, some of these issues of uh, guilt and innocence. Yes, could not agree more. So heartedly. On that note, okay. So so Iverson goes to trial. In Hampton Circuit Court, prosecution witness Steve Forrest, 22, testified that Iverson began the altercation at the Circle Lanes Bowling Center when, unprovoked, he began swearing at Forrest and his friends. According to Forrest, as he stood facing Iverson, someone hit him from behind, a melee ensued, some people threw chairs and others threw punches. Brandon Smith, the employee of the bowling center and a fellow student of Iverson's at Bethel High, testified that he saw Iverson hit a woman in the head with a chair and that Iverson eventually hit him with a chair as well. Iverson told a much different version on the witness stand, saying that a white man at the alley had triggered the incident by directing racial epithets at him and then hitting him with a chair. Iverson testified that a friend of his pulled him away and that they left the alley as soon as the brawl began. So that's like kind of That's it. what we know. That's, like, from everything I've been able to gather in my research, like, it was just pretty much a he said, she said. Yeah. The videotape that we had mentioned was thrown out, um, not uh, deemed inadmissible by the court because of its low quality and uh, terrible, terrible camera work. I guess they weren't shooting HD in 1993. Yeah, exactly. I don't know who made that that camcorder, but, but yeah, not not the best technology, not the most cutting edge. Shooting it on a flip phone. Yeah, exactly. So now this was an important wrinkle. I think actually very important. So uh, following the first day of court, which was a Friday, Nike which at the time was already like well invested in Iverson and his career. He played uh, AAU ball, a guy named Boo Williams, who's another one of those names in our story, up with Gary Moore. Boo Williams was his AAU coach, another sort of 
guy who tried to Parental you know, figure. mentor him and, and protect him as much as best he could. But so Nike, which, you know, was already like trying to recruit Iverson, you know, seeing well in advance that the kind of potential that he had, they flew Iverson to a weekend long high school basketball camp. And this was after the first day of his trial. It was like a big kind of point of contention of like whether or not he should attend this camp, this camp, um, you know, for basketball when he's in the middle of this like incredibly serious and important legal proceeding. He should seem humble. He should yeah, seem he should show remorse. Repentant. He should yeah. just be a quiet little like mouse in his house and right. not do anything and don't be a flashy, think about what he's done. Don't be a flashy black kid who yeah. has aspirations of being a flashy pro basketball player. Right. Be a quiet, repentant, sorry uh, remorseful Think about what you've done. Thing. Think about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, of course, Iverson wanted to get his fucking mind off of this ridiculous trial that right. he was suddenly in the middle of. So he says, yeah, sure, I want to go fucking play basketball for the weekend and, and forget about all this nonsense. So he leaves and flies off. And this hugely, hugely pisses off both Judge Overton and the prosecution including Hampton Commonwealth Prosecutor Colleen Killalay, who, you guessed it, had bigger political aspirations. So Colleen Killalay is, wow, she's a real number. Um, after the weekend basketball camp, Iverson comes back for uh, Monday, which is the actual final day of the trial, because literally there's not much to go over here. There's a couple witnesses, like it's a two-day trial. There's no real, you know, that's like how simple this case was. But so to Killalay and Judge Overton, Iverson's uh, jetting off, uh, you know, with his with his Nike pals for this basketball camp clearly showed a lack of respect and remorse. And isn't that's, that what this? Is about, that's really though, what they wanted ben. to extract. That's all they wanted. If from he him. could just be respectful yep. of these white people yep. who are offended by his behavior, yep. if he could just show some respect, then then they might consider waiving all of this and forgetting all of this. But he was disrespectful. Yes. And right? if you don't believe me, here is... Just look at the way he played basketball with no respect. Oh, yeah. Just mouthing dunking, off. Dunking on opponents, mm-hmm. crossing over opponents. He had no respect. Talk back to referees and, that, and coaches. that really was what all of this was about, yep. was let's teach Allen Iverson a we lesson. We need to teach him a lesson. Let's make... make Let's make exactly. Allen Iverson a respectful white person. Yeah, we need this, this, you know, wayward youth needs us. We have a responsibility to him. We have a to responsibility. Show him how to act. He doesn't know because because his culture never taught him how to behave. Yeah. So it's apparent, it's on us to teach him how he should behave. This is why we have this brilliant american justice system so that we can we could reform his behavior take these these you know difficult troubled youths and, and correct them. show them the right way yes yeah perfect Ugh, prosecutor colin killalay drove that point home oh my god in her closing one of her closing lines in her closing argument to the judge was quote now it's our turn to just do it ew yeah Meaning, she took the Nike slogan, just do it, and applied it to, now it's our turn to just convict this child of the crimes. Oh, okay. I just realized that we've 
gone all this all this time without actually discussing what Allen Iverson was charged with. Would that be maiming by mob? Maiming by mob. Now. What does that mean exactly? What is maiming by mob? I'll tell you what maiming by mob is. Maiming by mob was a... So, and this is just one more of those points uh, in our story that is just could not be more rich with with irony uh, and and just stupefying in its um, kind of like profundity. But maiming by mob was a law enacted in Virginia during the Jim Crow era to protect black people from lynching. So literally during Reconstruction and Jim Crow, when blacks in the South were being attacked and murdered and hung up with nooses by white people, the state of Virginia decided that that should be illegal. And they created a law that they put on the books called Maiming by Mob. Mob meaning a mob of hooded (laughs) Klansmen who go after black people. So Maiming by Mob became an actual crime and it was punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Maiming by mob is a felony which was put in the books in Virginia after the Civil War to combat lynching. Maiming by mob is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Yes, and that is the law, that is the crime that they charged Allen Iverson with. Three counts, to be precise, of maiming by mob and one count of assault by mob. Because clearly what happened at that bowling alley was an attempt a, a to lynch pre, a, a white person. A premeditated group um, hey, decided... Bl- hey, black friends, yeah. why don't we try to lynch that white guy here in this bowling alley? Yeah, let's, let's go <laughs> let's, out and, and, and cause some violence. Like, what a gross and, misinterpretation yeah. of the law. What an abuse. What an abuse <laughs> of the legal system and the law. I mean, it's mind-boggling. It's like you could have charged him with assault but it was almost because they needed to charge him with that because nothing else really makes sense because it was just a a huge brawl and it was a group it was a big group of people fighting another big group of people so that's a mob i guess and because there were severe injuries that's maiming okay so i guess we'll charge him with the crime that we initially put on the books to protect black people of course from white people who were lynching them so yeah so he was charged with maybe my mob oh we should also just quickly point out that he was also charged with three other men uh teammates of his uh melvin stevens samuel Wynn, and michael simmons so they were also tried at the same time as iverson uh, there was actually a, a hung jury for Melvin Stevens was wasn't charged with maybe my mob he was charged with like just assault or something like that so he was actually in a different trial but Iverson Simmons and Wynn were all were all charged together okay so getting back to the uh, the closing argument uh, now it's our turn to just do it Colleen Killalay and so was Colleen interested in being the attorney general <laughs> was she interested in being a federal po- that prosecutor I, that I don't know but she's was she trying to be governor there's always a story here yeah there's always a story here i actually sh- should have uh, i wish if i had if only i had had one more uh, week to to complete my research Wait, hold I on let me google in. this right now virginia district court yeah that's us <laughs> presiding judge there you go she became a judge good work colleen she became a judge yeah so she makes her closing argument to the judge um who obviously is a pretty sympathetic ear and it turns out that the judge convicted alan iverson of the three counts of maiming by mob. Keep in mind, there's no jury here because for some reason, Alan Iverson's lawyer decided not to take a jury trial. Can I, can I ask a question? Yes. So 
uh, from my recollection of the 30, 30 by 30 and from what you remember seeing, I remember Alan's camp feeling like it would be an upset. Like they did not, ex- were, like, oh no, they yeah, were yeah. on the fence. I mean, I, I, I think they, they've understood the climate that it was like, there were all these racial undertones or whatever to his case, but they really truly felt like, Hey, I'm innocent and I'll be back home tomorrow as an innocent man. Yeah. And I mean, maybe a slap on the wrist, maybe, maybe some probation, maybe some community service. This all be cleared up. I mean, this was a brawl between kids. We're not talking about 20 years in jail. With conflicting reports. Right. There was no, there were no drugs involved. There were no weapons involved. It was a bowling alley. Yeah. It was literally just like, kids. Okay. Like, yeah, this is pretty serious. He might get in trouble for it, but like what, like honestly, what's the worst that could happen? So the judge convicts Iverson of three counts of maiming by mob and suspends or postpones sentencing for two months. So then it's not until September of 1993 that the sentencing happens. And I think actually that was the uh, the date that we we were going to try to peg this podcast around. Um, so right, we only missed right, it by right. 10 days. Not so okay. bad, actually. So September 8th, 1993 rolls around and the uh, Judge Overton. This makes me so mad. Yeah. He, uh, Do you know how many kids I went to high school with gave each other concussions? Oh, God. Yeah. Like stitches and concussions. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Someone got stitches and, and, and had a concussion. Yeah. Billy, S- Billy got a concussion <laughs> at a bachelor party. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Billy gets concussions like every three I months. I understand he gets concussions all the time, but he voluntarily <laughs> got a concussion. <laughs> playing broom ball i believe on an ice skating rink sounds about right at a bachelor party yeah and like we did that all the time in high school yeah and and sometimes like kids were mad at each other and 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 inadvertently gave each other stitches or concussions or a black eye yeah that's what high school kids do yeah that's what high school kids do you don't put them in jail for 20 years yeah for being fucking 17 year old kids Iverson Sorry. wasn't sentenced to 20 years he was actually only sentenced to 15 oh, years excuse me in prison five counts for each five years sorry for each count of maybe my mob um the judge uh very you know benevolently uh decided to suspend 10 of those years and said with good behavior he iverson could be released within 10 months so that's not that long right but on top of that he denied iverson release on bond saying that he was a flight risk, which meant that he was not able to attend high school his senior year. He had to just actually go to prison that day. So September 8th, he's literally handcuffed in the courtroom and taken to prison. Getting denied bond was very rare. It was usually reserved for capital murderers, People sentenced to death row, you know, very, very serious, like drug lords. Stitches at a bowling alley. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Stitches at a bowling alley. Yeah. So he's going to jail. Can't go to high school his senior year. It makes obviously, me more and more angry. Obviously can't play sports, which you wonder, like, what was really the point? Was it just to my brother give, gave him me stitches. Ti- give him a timeout? My brother threw a rock <laughs> at my head. Joe, I love you. My brother gave me stitches on a 4th of July. Yeah. We were being kids. In 1993, Sports Illustrated writes, in denying an appeal bond, Overton said that Iverson would be a risk of not returning to court. A dubious assertion, given Iverson's close ties to the community, his clean record, and his desire to stay in school and play the sports that most likely will make him rich. In Virginia, all but the most violent criminals are routinely granted appeal bonds, and Prosecutor Killalay says her office was ready to recommend a $15,000 bond. The only catch was, 
Overton didn't bother to hear her recommendation. Then, when the outcry arose, he went on vacation. Jeez. Yeah. So, Iverson is sentenced to the uh, minimum minimum security Newport News City Farm. Um, His co-defendants, by the way, served time at the rougher Hampton City Jail. Oh, and then this is another uh, Killalay gem here that I have to impart. Following the sentencing... Killalay was speaking to the press on camera. She's speaking to reporters, and she said the following sentence, quote, I think they can be rehabilitated in jail also. I mean, there are programs available. There's a GED program there. (laughs) Iverson could finish his education. They have recreational facilities. I don't think he'd be any worse off. I don't think he'd be any worse off. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, lady. You just sent a kid to jail, and you don't think he'd be any worse off? Well, then why did you send him to jail? This is. From- I thought he was supposed to be punished, because he was an awful, terrible criminal. Shouldn't he, shouldn't he be worse off if he's such a terrible... Isn't the whole point of this fucking charade to yeah. punish this, right. this kid for his insolence and his, his bad attitude? Um, this is from an article written by Ben Dietrich at Grantland. He said, uh, Iverson maintained his innocence, but after a trial plagued by conflicting witnesses, he was sentenced to five years in prison. Due to his celebrity, the severity of the punishment, and the fact that no white men were charged, the case drew national attention. That's the other detail. After four months at a minimum security work camp, Iverson was eventually granted clemency. We'll get into that. Yes. But at a minimum security work camp. Yeah. Like, I mean, again, Hampton, Virginia. Work camp. I, I what does that remind you I of? I can't work camp. Like stress this Sounds enough. Sounds a little bit like coming back to the nerve center of 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 race relations, right? Yeah. Like the center, the nerve center of slavery yeah. in the United States. Yeah. It sounds a lot like a plantation life, mm. right? Mm. Yep, a little a bit. A work camp. Uh, another little tidbit from a Washington Post article from uh, December 93. Mm. Uh, quote, in the testimony, we proved... Oh, by the way, this is Colleen Killalay speaking once again. Quote, we proved. In the testimony, we proved that it would not even have started, meaning the brawl, would not even have started were it not for his mouth being out of control. Right. Yeah. So apparently he was being too loud in the bowling alley. See, in the NBA, that's just a technical foul. Yeah. But in the game of life, that's 15 years in prison. Yeah, yeah. Right? So Alan Iverson goes to prison. Let's talk quickly here about what happens in the media while he's in prison. It's obviously a national story. Famously, um, Tom Brokaw goes down right. to interview he him. Right, does an interview. For NBC News, um, big story. But uh, locally, the uh, the main sort of paper covering the story is the Newport News Daily Press, which I had mentioned earlier. It's kind of gross. Would yeah. you not say... The degree to which the media capitalizes oh, on... they went to town. Like, uh, like, look, I appreciate that, like, Tom Brokaw... Uh, was trying to raise some awareness about like an injustice. Yeah, and if anything, t- broke up actually probably helped Iverson's hey, case. Ultimately, that's like a great thing, yeah. right? But there is something nauseating a little bit. Oh, yeah, about yeah. like a bunch of white people in suburbia. So remember mm-hmm. that quote that I started this whole yeah. podcast with from Joyce Hobson. She said, "I think again, it's critical that African Americans tell their stories. You couldn't paint it." Because I lived it. I experienced it. When you look up and a story is being told and commented on and analyzed by only white journalists, 
then that in and of itself is very callous. So we have like Tom Brokaw and NBC News yeah. portraying this story for a white audience at home in suburbia on yeah. 60 Minutes or or whatever the program is, NBC Nightly News, whatever it is, about this like, you know, this this great injustice done up like that that, that that's come upon this like young black man. Mm-hmm. And there's something in, so inherently condescending about the whole whole thing yeah about the whole thing so so get a load of this so the newport news daily press which as i said was the main newspaper covering the story writing about it every single day mm-hmm. you know front page stories and it's great col- content and, and columnists you know <laughs> opinion pieces uh you know which which weren't even necessarily like reported they were just you know in 2018 terms, daily this is like a tweet this is a tweet every hour yeah right the newport news daily press had no black staff members writing about Iverson while he was in prison. The editorial board, which was writing every day about the story, was all white, including, most prominently, Jim Spencer. Gotta give a shout-out to my man, Jim Spencer, of the Newport News Daily Press, who was, if again, if you watch this, this 30 for 30 documentary, really comes across as one of the most just almost lovable in his night, in his incredible naivety um and and just sort of ignorant racism just kind of like negligent kind of like blithe racism he was a white columnist who wrote about iverson all the time was convinced that he was guilty wrote a column probably my favorite piece of his was a story with the headline n-word makes violence okay lawyer argues and he started this column thusly you honky punk you redneck pig, you hillbilly cracker, you wimpy, fat, overprotected, rhythmless, short stratting, low jumping, no basketball playing, small handed, clumsy white boy. Are words like these enough to justify a riot? I kept asking myself that as I watched the trials of basketball star Allen Iverson and three co defendants involved in a bowling alley brawl. So it's not, Jim Spencer, it's not that you're evil. I think you're just kind of dumb. Because we're unqualified. Yeah, there's a reason it's why like the N word has a different history and a different sort of reaction resonance. when it's uttered, a different resonance, if yeah. you will, than words like honky and redneck and hillbilly cracker. But according to Jim Spencer, uh, writing at the time for the Newport News Daily Press, he thought that they were just, you know, it was just sticks and stones may break, break my, my bones, bones, but words can never hurt me. So he thought that it was uh, completely unjustified for a person of color to react when a racial epithet is uh, hurled their direction. Oh, Jim Spencer also called Brandon Smith, the bowling alley employee uh, who testified against Iverson in the trial. He called him a hero. Uh, he said, quote, in, a, in, a, in another column, he said, quote, Iverson has shown a lot of character on the playing field but never as much as smith showed in court smith is not a villain in iverson's troubled life he is however unsung a hero he is the person who finally stood firm and let alan iverson in on the true secret to the to success real champions accept responsibility so yeah that's yeah. jim spencer uh, lecturing black people about how to feel about alan iverson in the pages of the newport news daily press that all was happening that's so depressing yeah oh um another um now this is getting sort of we can move past i think the the kind of media coverage sports mm-hmm. illustrated also did a um 
a pretty famous article called Southern Discomfort. Do you remember that? I actually think I remember reading yeah, it at the time. Yeah, this sounds familiar. It was like their big cover story on the uh, on the Iverson trial. That article, uh, in turn, actually angered the white community um, because it was like very anti. It was pretty pro Iverson. And um, and really like kind of like laid bare a lot of the, the sort of like racial uh, background of the of the town of Hampton. And when you were talking earlier about like oh I wonder how the bowling alley is doing these days and like how their reputation yeah. is holding up, the bowling alley actually sued uh, Sports the Illustrated. Paper? Oh, then Sports Illustrated. Yeah, or I guess Time Inc. or whatever, whoever owns uh, Sports Illustrated. Um, they actually sued them for like inaccuracies in the article, being like. Our bowling alley is like not filled with racists on, uh, on the regular, so like please redact that from redact your that. Yeah, from your pages, um, which I think is pretty funny. Before we get to our, uh, our our next main character, Douglas Wilder, right? One bit of uh, color and detail, which I think is very relevant and salient uh, from Iverson's time in prison, and this is going to kind of like come up later on in his life and his career. Um, this is from this is a passage from a book that I read um, because if it's not already clear, I kind of got carried away with my research here, and I decided to uh, to Go read deep. an entire book about Iverson <laughs> called uh, "Not a Game" mm-hmm. by uh, the great journalist Kent Babb, um, who was a Washington Post reporter who. Um, kind of spun an article of his into a whole book about Iverson. Um, anyway, he wrote in this book... We gotta uh, get him on the phone at some point. Yeah, yeah, we probably should uh, yeah. talk to him. He yeah. seems like a pretty smart uh, smart dude. Well, I just feel like he has a perspective yeah, he's, on the whole life and career. Mm-hmm. Like, he's taken all of the issues and topics that we're covering in this podcast into great consideration. Yeah. I mean, he spent years of his life like internalizing yeah. this, this yeah. story. Um, so, you know, as, as much as uh, it might seem like we're getting a little carried away here, it could, it could be worse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listeners. Um, so anyway, uh, a quick, quick passage from his book. Uh, this is about Iverson's time in the city farm quote, while inside Iverson said and did all the right things, Developing a relationship with Billy Payne, the warden of the prison farm, and doing as he was told in silence, even when a white prison guard called him an N-word, an acquaintance would later say, instructing Iverson to sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. It was an experience Iverson would rarely share with even those closest to him, but one that would shape his attitude moving forward, particularly toward those who barked orders without bothering to explain their logic. So, yeah. I think we all know why that uh, is important. I think I also, uh, I, I read that when uh, AI was incarcerated at this minim- minimum security work camp or farm, yeah. his teammates would come and visit him. Mm-hmm. Actually, his, his coach, his high school coach would bring uh, teammates from football and basketball to come see him. And... AI couldn't even look at them. He would literally turn his back to the glass partition because he didn't want to see, he didn't want them to see him weeping. Yeah. And, you know, that stuff is formative. Yeah. Like shame is formative and it's internalized. And uh, again, it, it to your point, like, you know, when he eventually made it, to the pros and became, you know, like an adult in the world and had a wife and kids, like that's stuff that doesn't leave you. That's part of your genetic makeup. And like, just remember the fact that like, we all know what happened now, but at the time he was just sitting in prison and just 
to him his entire life had been destroyed like he 15 years yeah he'd been he'd been you know recruited by all these colleges he was going to play football at notre dame and suddenly and he was going to be a millionaire i mean he was literally going to live like the he somehow dream of managed any kid. he managed not to die not to become a drug dealer not to join a gang yeah and a white girl needed stitches and someone had a concussion and suddenly he was doing 15 years in prison but keep in mind colleen Killalay thought that she didn't think he'd be any worse off. So yeah, so he's sitting in prison, has no idea, you know, what the rest of his life looks like. And he was there for four months. And then we enter into the picture, the governor of Virginia, Douglas Wilder. Now this is another like crazy detail to me. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be so crazy. Maybe I'm naive, but I was sort of shocked to read that Douglas Wilder was a he was the, he was a black governor, but he wasn't just a black governor. He was the first black governor ever elected in America. This was in 1990. Wait, in, what? Yeah. Right? You're like, I mean, I know that, you know. I thought race- you were going to say in Virginia. No, no, no. No, in America. In the history of America. There was one African-American uh, governor in Louisiana in 1872, but he had become governor because uh, he was oh elevated my. from lieutenant governor, and he served for literally one month before his term ended. Oh, my Lord. And that was in 1872. Since then, there were no black governors until 1990. I mean, there were black senators, sure. There were black congressmen, congresswomen. They were black mayors, but there was no statewide black governor until Douglas Wilder was elected in 1990. 1990! And so it's like, what are the odds that of all the times to be in prison and of all the states to be in prison, Alan Iverson was... You said 1990? 1990, he was elected, yes. Or maybe he was elected in 89 and assumed office in 1990. I'm not totally sure of that, but yeah, 1990. First black governor. That's so problematic. Yeah, right? Kind of crazy. I know, I was like, oh, wow, I really would have thought that there'd be more. Oh, and since then, there have only been two more, Deval Patrick in Massachusetts and David Patterson in New York, but of course, Patterson was only governor because Elliot Spitzer couldn't keep his pants. Um, So yeah, it turns out that um, it's pretty hard to be elected governor if you are African-American. All right, we're going to leave it there. That's chapter two of The Life and Times of Alan Iverson. My name's Chris Wendelkin. This is On the Line. If you're interested in diving a little deeper with some of this stuff, we're going to be tweeting out all sorts of photos and videos and uh, just memories of everything that was happening in Hampton, Virginia in 1993 with with Circle Lane's bowling alley and the the political climate at the time. So find us on Twitter. We'll be at ontheline underscore pod. You can email me if you have any questions or thoughts about AI or or memories you want to share at onthelinepod at gmail.com. Please rate review and subscribe to the show in itunes or wherever you get podcasts enjoy the rest of the nba off season and i'll talk to you guys next week the